0: Well, my wife and I, and Pastor Dinah, and about 30 other people uh, had a wonderful vacation. But, like so many vacations and trips, the longest and the hardest part is on the way home. And most of the group was from the Houston area, so the flight originated from Houston and uh, went to Dublin and then uh, with a couple stops and then came back to Houston. So, we knew that we were going to have to change airlines, get our bags, Get them to the new airline and catch a flight to San Antonio, and that we would have about an hour to do this. So we knew there might be some challenge involved. But lo and behold, the plane we were on landed in Houston 15 minutes early. So it looked pretty good. And so we went to baggage claim and waited for our luggage, and waited for our luggage, and waited for our luggage. And finally, the leader of our group went over and found out that they've known for almost 15 minutes that our luggage wasn't coming. That about half of our baggage never made the connection to Houston. Well, with the flight to catch, we now had to, uh, even without luggage, go and file first a luggage claim so that someday we could get the luggage back. And the clock is ticking. So then we had to go upstairs to the ticketing agent of the airline uh, that we were switching to. And uh, we had to do this because we had all checked in before we left Dublin by our phones, but half of us got a boarding pass on the phone and the other half, it never materialized. So we went to the uh, ticketing agent who was obviously there just killing time until he could close up shop. And so we came, explained our situation and he said, well, you know, that plane that you want is already beginning to board. And he said, I'll call them, and, uh, and perhaps I'll hold it for you. Now, there are no guarantees. And we said, well, we need boarding passes. So he tried one, two, three. Finally, on the fourth computer, he found one that was on, printed the boarding passes. So boarding passes in hand, we headed to the TSA uh, uh, station. And TSA somehow was involved in change of shift but they waited until we got there to initiate it. So that took a while, and we waited, and he obviously knew. I think we indicated, you know, we're trying to catch a plane. Uh, and then my backpack and another one go through, and they've spotted liquid. Well, they think they've spotted liquid. They're not sure because one of them says, I think there's a liquid in his backpack. And the other was like, no, that's not liquid. And so they take it apart, and they can't find any liquid. But the first guy says, I, I know there's liquid in their backpack. So I know there's not, so I thought I would help. So I come around the counter and, sir, now come on this side or we'll have to call. Great. Now I'm going to miss my flight and spend the night in jail in Houston, Texas. Finally, they decided that there wasn't any uh, liquid on there and we went and got on the tram to go to the next gate. I mean, the next uh, terminal got up and, and our gate, as, as things would, uh, would have it, I was at the very end of the very long hall. But there was one of these where there are three or four gates are real close together. So actually, it was facing almost like the exit doors straight in front of me. So I could see our gate. And the gate agent could see me. And I was running toward him with my backpack on. Now, for me, it's running. For you, it's probably a real fast walk. But I'm moving and waving. And he looks at me. And I'm getting closer. And he looks at me. And I'm getting closer. And he goes inside the door and closes it behind him. So we get to the door. We can see him at the end of the gangway there talking to a flight attendant or somebody. And we knock. We look for an intercom. We punch buttons. And he sees us. And like seven minutes later, he comes out and he says, I'm sorry, you're too late. Didn't they tell you at the ticketing place that there are no guarantees? Well, as a matter of fact, They did tell us that three times. So as we turn around, now destined to spend the night in Houston, uh, somewhere near the airport and start walking to try to get boarding passes for the first flight out the next day, um, one of the women with us said, obviously they don't know who I am. She said, I am Premier Elite. Well, Premier Elite didn't do much good. But we did get on the flight the next morning, but what was interesting is we're getting on a tram to go uh, to an airport hotel, and on the tram is the ticketing agent. Three times he promised us there were no guarantees. He looked at the eight of us like he'd never seen us before. Well, the next morning, um, because actually one of us had actually gotten luggage, so the Premier Elite and her husband went early to get that luggage checked through. Uh, We arrived later, and when we find her, she said, you know, they have treated me like a queen. And she named off all the things they've done for her because she's Premier Elite. And I said to her, you know, Premier Elite must be a little bit like Cinderella's coach. I have a feeling that at 9 o'clock on Saturday night, Premier Elite turns into a pumpkin because it didn't do you any good last night. Well, we got on the first flight and made it home, for which we're grateful. But interestingly, Dinah and another person are walking through baggage claim. And I have no idea why, because we have no baggage. And they see our luggage. Apparently, when it did arrive, they contracted with this other airline of Premier Elite to get it there. So we get home. We've got our luggage. It all ends well. So why am I bothering to tell you this long story? Three things. Number one, I just need to get it off my chest. (laughs) Number two... When we ran into the ticket agent on the, on the tram, who acted like he'd never seen us before, uh, we're getting off, and one of my buddies says to me, he said, I guarantee you this will show up in one of your sermons within two months. <laughs> Try seven days. But the third reason that I tell you this story is simply this. I want you to know that you are premier elite. I want you to know that you have a status as the beloved of God, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, And that it doesn't expire at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, Saturday night, Tuesday, 5 a.m. Doesn't expire because you don't have enough miles. Doesn't expire because you've omitted to do some things. Or get reenacted because you remembered to do some things. Your status is you in Christ are the beloved. That's one of the beauties of baptizing four children this morning. I guarantee you none of them yet has put a dime in the offering plate. Helped a little old lady across the street. Or help someone get on their flight that they're missing. And yet, we tell them how special they are. And we let them know that they are the beloved. That is their status. That is who they are. You and I are the beloved of God. And nothing changes that. You are of amazing value and worth to God. And I just need to remind you of that. And it does not expire or run out. But here's another thing I need to remind you of. If that is true of you and me, is it not also true of the people around us and the people that we will encounter this day and every day? Genesis tells us that the image of God is inside all human creation. The The early Jewish commentators put it this way. Why is it that every person has Adam for his father? So that no one can ever say to somebody else, my father's greater than your father. This is my family name, but that's your family name. And it's not the same and as good as mine. Doesn't happen. John Claypool, who's, uh, the late John Claypool's experience of most of his life was trying to come to understand that he was loved and valued unconditionally by God. That he was, didn't have to become somebody, he already was somebody. He said that was like half his life's battle. He said, but the other half is recognizing that if that's true of me, it's true of other people as well. So my reminder to you is that you are premier elite, but my reminder to you further is so are the other people that you will encounter, not just in this building, but outside of it as well. And then the question I have for you is this. Are you and I treating the other people in the world as if they are as valuable as we are. Are we treating the other people in our life as if they are premier elite? As if the image of God is inside of them. You know, every every Sunday we talk about what Jesus said was the great commandment. We recite it. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think it does mean that we have to love ourselves. I, I think that is true in order to to love others well. But many people believe the most accurate translation of that, of that verse in the Hebrew is, love your neighbor for he or she is like yourself. They're just like you, made in the image of God. They're not less. They're not other. They are just like you. And are we treating them like that? My whole takeaway from Saturday night is I, I spent about an hour treated as if I wasn't very significant. To the ticketing agent, I was an inconvenience. To the TSA people, I was a a potential terrorist. And to the person at the gate, I'm an impediment to another on-time departure. I was anything but valued, worthy, beloved. And I, I just want to tell you that that's not how God intended. God intended that we would treat each other the way that God would treat us and that we would look at each other and value each other the way that God looks at us and the way that God values us. Because when we don't, not only are there breakdowns in our relationship, there are breakdowns in society, there are breakdowns in people's life. Treat somebody as if they're not valuable long enough, they'll begin to believe it and they'll begin to act into ways that show that they do not sense that they are somebody and they'll try to create their own identity. And they'll do things to try to create their own place in the world because they don't believe they already have one, just as they are for who they are. Do it long enough, things break down. Do it long enough to enough people, the world starts to break down. Isaiah Berlin, a Jewish scholar of some decades ago, put it this way. He said, for a slaughter to take place, for a slaughter to take place, we must believe that those who do not share our faith, our race, or our values do not share our humanity. That they're different from us, they are not equal to us, they are not as worthy as we are. And you have to have that mindset before you can exterminate an entire group of people. You have to have that mindset before you can belittle a spouse. You have to have that mindset before you humiliate another human being in a discussion. Or political debate. You have to believe they are not human like you. That they do not share your worth. And your value. That's all it takes for slaughter to take place. And I do not believe for a moment. Any of us is going out there to engage in genocide. But I do believe that emotionally. I am capable of slaughtering the people closest to me. And people with whom I feel like. I don't have anything in common. At all. And all that it takes. Is for me to say I am somebody, and because they are different, they are not. We have been talking this whole fall about our identity as sons and daughters of God, and the implications, if we live into that, will change not only our lives, it will change our church for decades to come. And I just want to share with you one of those implications. And one of those implications for me is this that our church will become a place of honor, it, a place of honor where people are valued for who they are, even if they are different from me or from you, and the difference will actually add to their value, not detract from it. What does it mean to honor? I think quickly what, part of what's what involved in honor is to welcome and accept another person. Please do not tolerate me. I'm so tired of hearing about tolerance. I'm becoming very intolerant about it. Because I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be welcomed, I want to be affirmed, I want to be valued as someone who makes a positive contribution to society or to family or to this organization. Years ago, uh, we had a good friends. Actually, actually, we still have them to this day. Um, the wife is Catholic, the husband is Methodist. But amazingly, what they did, they'd go to both churches every Sunday. And one Sunday, um, uh, the wife who's Catholic was going to bring her mother to our church. First time she'd ever been to a Protestant church. You know, daughter of Catholics, daughter of Catholics, I mean, all the way back for what, as long as she could remember. I remember being so nervous about the day she was going to come. You know, How would things go? And I remember being nervous about the sermon. Well, I ought not say that, but I ought to try to work that in and, and really worked on all this stuff. So when it was over the next day, I asked my friend, well, how did your mother like it? And her response to me was, well, she didn't hate it. I got the sense she tolerated it. I don't want to be tolerated. I don't want any of you to be tolerated. I want you to be affirmed. I want you to be welcomed and valued. I want you to be treated as if you are, in the words of Dallas Willard, a ceaseless being. I mean, do you know anybody you're going to run into today, you're likely to run into again in 250 years or 500 years or 700 years? I mean, people have real eternal worth. We can't pass over them lightly. So I want a place where people are welcomed and honored and valued. Second thing I think is important to me in, in honoring is this, and that is that we allow other people to make contributions. That to be to be honored means not only that I'm I welcomed here, but I can make the God-given contribution that God has for me to make in this life, and I can do it here through us and with us. Rosabeth uh, Moss Cantor, who for years was a professor in Harvard Business School, said something 15 years ago that I have not forgotten. She said this, In this world there are far too many problems and far too few geniuses to leave the solutions in the hands of a few. Let me put it another way. We need all of us operating out of our gifts and unique talents that matt talked about last sunday we need that to navigate this planet one of the wonderful things god did for us is he didn't give any one of us other than jesus all the gifts and talents so by definition i'm incomplete without you without what you bring to the table i can't be who i was made to be and we can't go where God has for us to go. God created us differently, but that difference is our value. That difference does not detract. It adds the value. For a basic example, male and female, God created them. I mean, could you imagine if all the pastors and this church staff were male? You just don't even want to imagine that. I mean, Michael and I and Harold need what Donna and Dinah bring to the table. And I believe they need what we bring to the table doesn't devalue anybody to be different. It enhances the value. And we need to become a place where people can bring their gifts and offer them because God knows we need them. And then finally, I want to share this, that to be a place of honor means that people who do not yet know their talents and gifts can have them discovered here, that we will help draw them out of people, Knowing that the image of God is within you, I know that you have things and part of my job is to help you, help draw those out of you so that you can contribute them to the larger kingdom and to God's purpose, eternal purpose of making this earth more like heaven. And so part of it is I've got to recognize your value maybe in a way and your talents in a way that you do not yet see them. See, I think we get hung up on who people are not rather than who they are. You know, we have a mold for them, and, they, and when they don't fit it here and they don't fit it there, we start to dismiss them rather than to look for the things that they do bring to the table. One of the things about Pastor Michael that you may know is he spent a part of the summer studying at the C.S. Lewis house at Oxford, and so he's helped kind of get us all back in touch with C.S. Lewis again. And one of the great quotes from C.S. Lewis, is, it's something like this. It ends, you probably know the way it ends. Lewis says, basically, there are no mere mortals. There are no mere mortals. And then before that, he says, every person you meet is on their way to becoming a, a creature of such wonder and beauty that you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Or they're on their way, basically, to becoming a hideous creature of hell. And the fact is, everyone we meet is, is, is on that journey. And whether they go one way or whether they go the other is often determined by the way that we treat them and respond to them. We can help people to their divine destiny. When we had the baptism this morning, that started a journey. That just started. And you and I have the lives of these children, not just their parents, but we have the lives of these children in our hands to help feed that destiny within them and help identify they're, who they are uniquely and what they bring to God's table. And to me, that's honoring. We do that. That's the kind of place I want to be. Charles Williams has a great phrase that has helped me. He said, we must learn to see people with double vision. We accept the reality of who they are and what's going on right now. But we also are able to see them as they may yet in Christ become and contribute. And we draw forth from them those gifts. And those gifts are needed. I've told people the other uh, services that basically I think there are two ways to do church. There's the right way and then there's the way I try to do it. And the right way is that, you know, that we work and, and conceive a very detailed plan and we give people detailed assignments about that plan and we set them loose. There's another way that that assumes that all of us have that spark of God inside us and Christ and the Holy Spirit residing in our life. And we allow people, once they know the larger vision, to help bring heaven to earth to find their place within that. And they may create something new or they may join something somebody else created. And we need our planners to help when we identify to plan and take us there but it's not that a few people decide for many. It's that the the people are all empowered because of who God has made them to be. Uh, one of my uh, things that helps me is that great quote from the author, author of The Little Prince who once said, if you want to build a boat, you could uh, divide people into groups and assign some to draw it and some to collect the wood and some to build it. And He said that's one way to do it. Another way you could do it if you want to build a boat is to teach people to love the endless sea. And they'll figure out how and why in a way that fits them and where they want to go. And I think what we're trying to do in this church is say love the sea, love God, love others. Know that you're loved. Let's see where that goes. Because we value and honor you. We know that it will go good and right places. I know you've heard the old story. Michelangelo is talking about the great sculptor of David and, that he did. And somebody said, how did you do that? You know, you start with this big piece of stone. How do you do it? And he said, well, I saw David in it, and I chipped away everything that wasn't David. He said, I freed David from that statue. Every one of you is premier elite. Every one of you is David and has David within you, but so do others. May we live in such an honoring way that the gifts we have will be brought out of ourselves and brought out of others as well to the end that the earth becomes like heaven.